0: And I'll read for you verses 17 through 23. You might start to have most of this memorized by the time we get through it all. Jude 17. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, and have mercy on some who are doubting, save others snatching them out of the fire, and on some who Have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. So in the reading of God's word. May we be blessed as we study it together. You may be seated. He is risen. We serve a risen Savior. It's interesting, after the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, he made several post-resurrection appearances. And one of the most interactive of these appearances was with one of his disciples, one by the name of Simon Peter on the seashore of Galilee. In this particular instance, just think about this. We had a men's breakfast a couple of weeks ago, and uh, the guys made some great food, and it was great fellowship. Jesus, at this particular instance, made breakfast for the disciples. Uh, Sorry, Rick and Justin and all you guys, but I think this is a pretty good breakfast that Jesus made. Well, he had made breakfast, and and after they ate, Jesus turns to Peter, and he asks Peter that profound and piercing question, one that Peter had to kind of wrestle with even in the moment. And he says to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Simple question, not at all simple in one regard but it certainly got Peter thinking as Jesus had to repeat the question three times but it made me stop to think just what are the the these that Jesus is speaking of was he speaking of the breakfast you love me more than food there's a sense in which Jesus' question was calling Peter to examine all the things that he could possibly love more than him, than Jesus himself. If we expand on and apply this question, Peter is being asked if he loved Jesus more than the others who were with him. He was asking Peter, do you love me more than earthly honors and prestige? Peter, do you love me more than worldly riches? Peter, do you love me more than any earthly comforts? Peter, do you love me more than your parents, more than your children, more than your siblings, more than your friends? The thrust of Jesus' question was to have Peter questioned what he really loved or who he really loved. And he's trying to pierce down to Peter's heart and say, Peter, will you love me singly, solely, supremely, above all, amid 10,000 other things that are vying for your heart? Even in this moment, Peter, do you love me more than these? You're like, I'm glad he asked Peter that. But the question that was asked Peter is a question that everyone who professes Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord must ask himself. And will you take an honest evaluation of your heart in this hour and answer the question, do you love me, do you love Jesus more than these? In a sense, it's a way of asking, does the beauty of Christ charm me? Does the love of Christ win me? Does the grace of Christ draw me? Does the cross of Christ attract me? Have the sufferings and death of Christ subdued me to the point of repentance, faith, and love to him and to his people? Is Christ dearer to me than the earth's greatest attractions? Is Christ more precious to me than any other of my heart's most precious treasures? Can I part with all the things and every one to have Christ and Christ alone? Jesus is asking, do you love me more than these? as Octavius Winslow, a Baptist preacher in England at the same time as Charles Spurgeon and J.C. Ryle, so pointedly penned in poetry, Do I love you, O my Lord? Behold my heart and see. Gently dislodge each idle thence that seeks to rival thee. You know I love you, dearest Lord, but, oh, I long to soar far from the spheres of mortal joy, and learn to love you more. However much we think we may love Jesus, our prayer ought to be, Lord, may I love you more. The verse from our text that we will focus on this morning is verse 21. And it begins with a command, if you notice there, verse 21 is the command, and Jude writes to these believers and says, keep yourselves in the love of God. As we've been working our way through verses 17 through 23, we have noted that in these verses there are five commands, five calls to arms, by which Jude is exhorting, pleading with believers to behave so that they will not fall prey to the temptation of falling away from the faith, that which we refer to as apostasy. Remember that an apostate is simply a person that had once Proclaimed to believe the truth concerning God, man, sin, Jesus Christ, and salvation. But along the way, began to reject that truth in favor of another gospel, which Paul would tell the Galatians is no gospel at all. Such a person may claim godliness. They may possess knowledge of the word, but in the end... They are those who Jude said earlier in this letter who turn the grace of our Lord God, of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and lord Jesus Christ. Recall that the word licentiousness speaks of wanton, reckless and loose living. It speaks of those who justify in their minds and then promote to others the participation in one or more of their vices, sins that are condemned in Scripture, but now they're saying, it's okay if you do it this way. There are those who, in the name of Christianity, actually practice and proclaim that evil is good and good is evil. Some apostasy is subtle. It's hard to detect at first. And so Jude is saying, let's be on guard. Let's be ready for a battle. You need to wake up. He's calling the church. And and I can say to you that if... The Spirit of God is calling these original believers to wake up and know that you're in a battle and know that you have weapons and perhaps that you've not been using these weapons as you ought, then it's time to take stock and see what's in your quiver and start using the weapons which God has given you to protect you from apostasy and enable you to proclaim the greatness and gloriousness of the gospel that will save people. There are obviously apostasies that are easy to spot, that which is just in your face, but whether they're subtle or overt, such persons are to be avoided. We began with the first command. Remember the words that were spoken beforehand. We can answer the question, how do we prepare ourselves for the battle? What is to be our priority? And he says, Jude says, by inspiration of the Spirit, He gives the first of these five weapons by which the battles against the lies and schemes of the devil may be found. And uh, that first one in verse 17 is the command to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word to remember means to keep it on the forefront of your mind. You're never to go any place where you would say the word of God does not apply in this situation. You are never ever to concede, never put down the weapon of the word of God because it is your only authority. If you begin to argue with somebody with some other authority or with no authority, you will lose the battle. Someone will outwit you. Someone will apply some logic you have not thought of. But the word of God is our wisdom. The word of God is the truth. And so we come to God with or come to people with the truth of God's word, and therefore we keep it on the forefront of our minds. Believers are to be people of the book. And Jesus commissioned the apostles to be those who would speak the words of God to his people. Second Peter chapter one, verses twenty through twenty-one testifies of this truth. Peter writes, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit, carried along by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. God has spoken to you. Can I tell you something? I just, I'm sorry, I'm going to get, maybe this won't be as humorous as I think it is, but you know what this is? This is God's text message to you. It wouldn't fit on a phone, so he put it this way. And so God has sent you his word, and he has sent it to you through his prophets of old and through the apostles. We have the words of the apostles, men who are speaking for God, and if we will ever be successful in the battle that is before us, it means that we will be Bible-saturated people. We want to drown if we could in the word of God, but God won't let you drown in it, but he will let you take it in. The only thing that limits you with your knowledge of the word of God is your own commitment to it it's not God's fault it's not an environmental issue it's your resolve to be in the word of God keep them at the forefront of everything you do we are called Paul said in Ephesians six seventeen, to take up the sword of the spirit which is what the word of God. It is our only true offensive weapon. Everything else in the arsenal of the armor of God, if you read it in Ephesians 6, is defensive. But the one weapon you have that is for your offense is the word of God. Beloved, let's remember it and let's know it and let's proclaim it to one another. And that brings us to the second command, and the second command, the second weapon by which we are enabled to stand against the temptation of apostasy is found in that statement in beginning in verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. But as you know, we've been sneaking up on this command. We've been trying to tiptoe around it in a sense, and, and we're, we're coming to recognize that by the direction of the Holy Spirit, Jude speaks of two steps that will aid believers in their quest to fulfill the second command. And they include. They must be, it says there in verse 20, they must be those who are building themselves up on your most holy faith, which is yet another call to proclaim and practice the teachings of the apostles and the word of God. And we must be praying in the Holy Spirit, which as we noted last week, means that we are praying or communicating with God. We are speaking to him, having a conversation with him, which includes something that sometimes we are are guilty of not doing, and that means listening. That in our prayer time, it's not just us mouthing words to God that we should be still, as we heard this morning. Cease our striving, and we need to know that he is God. We are to pray with an open Bible so that you can know what God is is communicating to you. But we also noted with regard to praying in the Holy Spirit that such prayer, because he says praying in the Holy Spirit, means it's not self-generated prayer. It's not self-led prayer. It shouldn't be, your prayer shouldn't be, what do I want to pray about per se, but how is it that I ought to pray? Jesus didn't say, "Uh, this then is how... Uh, You should pray in, in your own wisdom. He says, this then is how you ought to pray. And he gives the model, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He lays the template out. That's how we ought to approach God. We noted that in the Holy Spirit means that it is in the realm or the sphere of the Holy Spirit that true biblical prayer is always spirit-generated, always spirit-led, because anything other than that is not true biblical prayer. And it's with these two practices, will you build up one another in the faith, and will you be praying in the Holy Spirit, that Jude now uh, issues this command to believers, keep yourselves in the love of God. The keeping of this command is at the core of the believer's responsibility to be developing an immunity against apostasy. It is, as it were, the the vaccine, the good vaccine, that builds up your immunity against the, the virus of apostasy. If believers, whether it be individually or corporate, when they are around one another, they are to strive to keep themselves in the love of God because that will insulate them from the errors and temptations of apostasy. It will insulate them from that problem of falling away from God. Believers who isolate themselves or professing believers who isolate themselves from the body of Christ are those who are ripe to fall away. Well, let's look at what this means exactly. and We've broken it down today just by the words themselves. Let's begin with this word keep. We should be moving along here. What does Jude mean by the command that believers are to keep themselves in the love of God? Well I'm glad you asked. Let us first consider the action that we're called to do, and it's found in that verb keep. And unlike the verse the verbs in verse 20 that are in the present tense Be building and keep on building yourselves up. Be praying and keep on praying in the Holy Spirit. The verb here is not in the present tense. It doesn't say keep and keep on keeping yourselves in the love of God. What it actually reads, it's in the aorist tense, which means a a past completed action. It speaks, beloved, of a firm resolve. It is a once for all determination. I will be. Be devoted from this point until the Lord Jesus returns to be in the realm of the love of God. The verb gives us that, uh, that idea. The word keep means can mean to guard as from loss or injury. I want to make sure that there is no loss in myself or in one another to the love of God. There's no injury to our understanding of the love of God. It has the idea of protective protecting something securely it is wrapping your arms around it it is keeping it in a safe place your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you it has the idea of keeping your eye on something or someone sometimes I hear our parents tell older children after church keep your eyes on your you know, on your younger siblings as they go out and play I don't want them hit by a car or taken by a stranger well you're telling keep your siblings safe. That's the idea that is here. Other words that convey the meanings of this word are to hold fast, to persevere, to watch. We could say it in today's vernacular, I'm keeping my eye on that. I'll keep my eye on on what what this, this particular thing is. And believers are to make this resolve that they keep or guard or watch, protect over, that they ensure that And when they do that, they will ground themselves and seek to ground others in the love of God. This is quite a call. I mean, our responsibility is to say, God, today make me a person. If you haven't already done this, it's to say, God, make me a person who... who, keeps myself, guards from injury or loss, the love of God in my life, and let me do that for others as well. Because if a believer will keep themselves individually and seek to keep others in the love of God, that is a weapon that enables believers to withstand apostasy. So it's interesting to me that we speak as a Bible church so often, so highly and correctly of being God-centered and and Bible-centered. We want to be focused on the word of God. But it also has to include a commitment to be in the love of God and to keep others in that place. Well, he doesn't just use this verb keep. He says keep yourselves. That leads to another question. What is What is what? What is it that believers are to keep themselves in? Well, they keep themselves in the love of God, but literally the word order here is very interesting. Jude writes it this way. If I were to read it literally word for word from the Greek, he says, yourselves in the love of God, keep. Now, why is that important? He starts with yourselves. It's a wake-up call. Be focused on what the love of God is, yourselves. He puts it in the emphatic position Yourselves is first making it the point. It is a call to attention. It is this wake-up call. You people, yourselves, must keep the call to love, to keep yourselves in the love of God. It reminds believers that doing this is a matter of vital interest and importance. If you fail at this, you not only run the risk of running into apostasy yourself, but you could lead others into apostasy. There is a sense in which a congregation rises or falls on how they do in keeping this command. Isn't that what Jesus said? If uh, by this the world will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. A congregation can rise or fall on its practice of keeping themselves in the love of God. But now that comes to the statement. In the love of God. What does that mean? To keep ourselves in the love of God implies at least a couple of things. First, it means that you have already experienced the love of God. You can't keep yourselves in something that you are not already experiencing or have experienced. This means that you have known what Jude has already communicated from the beginning of this book when he says that you are the called, you are the elect, you are the chosen of God, and you've been given the position, as we read in verse 1, as being beloved in God the Father. Chosen and beloved of God the Father. You have already experienced the love of God as communicated through the work of Christ. Having been granted this position and experiencing that uh, great position of being God's loved ones, the call to believers now in verse 21, you ready for this? We get to work in cooperation with him that when we start fleshing out what the love of God is that we're supposed to be in, it's not just us kind of passively letting it all happen and we're not responsible to do anything. God says through his word that you play a part in how this love is experienced individually and as a body. The command, however, does not apply that, that uh that one's salvation is dependent, or even kept, by one's own efforts. Rather, it's much like what we read in Philippians chapter two, verses. 12 through 13 where we see God uh, make a statement we see the Holy Spirit make a statement that this is what you're supposed to do and it's followed up by saying guess what you're supposed to do it but you'll only be able to do it because I your God am working in you knows what Paul, Paul writes so then my beloved using the same love language just as you have always obeyed not as in my presence only but now much more in my absence here's here's the cooperation. Work out your salvation. Work it out how? With fear and trembling. As you know that if he doesn't save you, you are not saved for salvation is from the Lord. Well, how am I supposed to do this? Because this is part of the fear and the trembling, right? Because if left to my own devices, I would fall away from the Lord. And so Paul adds, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good Pleasure, beloved, in like manner. Jude is now calling us to work out the love of God. That we are to be resolved in keeping ourselves in that love, realizing that as we do so, as we are experiencing that love, as we manifest that love, as others see the love of God working through us, they realize, we realize that it's actually God loving us and loving through us and enabling us to love. Now, I keep asking the question, though, what is the love of God? Well, there are two ways in which we might understand this. It could be either the believer's love for God, or it could be God's love for the believers. So which is it? You know, see, sometimes I always, like, I always take the easy way out. Let's just say it's both, right? Well, let's think about this. It, it could be either in one sense. If we are to understand it as the believer's love for God, then Jude is calling believers to stand firm and be resolved in their love and affection and adoration and commitment to God amid all those who are currently defecting and falling away. A reason by which you might understand it this way is that it may seem unreasonable that believers would be called to keep up God's love for us. I mean, how God... I, I need to, you to keep your love up for us. I mean, that seems counterintuitive, right, to, to say that. How, what can we do to keep up God's love for us? What, what do we contribute to that? To be sure there is a truth in the idea that believers ought to keep up and, and guard and protect their love to and for God, it's truly a biblical concept. Even as Jesus finished asking Peter if he loved him, upon hearing Peter's affirmation, Jesus said to him, what? Tend my lambs. In other words, be resolved to demonstrate and keep yourselves in this love you've just professed by shepherding the flock which I am giving to you. But with all that said, it would seem better to understand that Jude is calling believers to keep, to guard, protect the principle of God's love for them. I think the focus really is you need to be so saturated in your perception of God's love for you as, a, as an individual and in God's love for his church. That's the call here. Why would I say that? Because this is in keeping with verse 1, which has already identified the recipients uh, of God's love. These are the beloved. These are the kept for Jesus Christ in verse 1. Now we see something similar where believers keep themselves in the love of God, which is balanced by what will result next. When you do this, you will be waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what is the idea of keeping ourselves in the love of God? Let me make it real simple. I think we have it up there. It means to be occupied in the sphere or realm of God's love. You're constantly considering the love of God. You're constantly relating everything you're thinking and doing to how God loved you. I mean, even Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's this motivation of God in your thinking and dwelling on that. The idea is that everything we do as believers is to be generated and motivated by God's love for us. We love because he first loved us. That's the motivation, and we are to keep ourselves in the mindset that God has loved me first and loved me to the end and loved me so fully that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the propitiation, the satisfying atonement for my sin. So then while it does appear to be speaking of God's love for believers, and believers are to keep and guard or protect themselves in this love, what is pictured for us here is how believers are indeed loved by God. They are making sure that what they say and do is motivated and consistent with the love of God. But just what is love? Well, you know, if you've been uh, in this church for any length of time, I have my ongoing working definition of love you, it was back up there, we haven't gotten to it yet, one more back, back, sounds like a water break to me, one more back please, there it is, what is love? It is a one way, unconditional act of the will and intention of the heart that seeks the highest good for another regardless of the cost, and all for the glory of God. It, 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 it says, I'm going to do this regardless of how the other person responds. It says that I will be sacrificial in this. Whatever it costs, I'll do this. How can we know that we are in the sphere and influence of God's love for us, beloved, when we keep the practice of God's love to God and to one another? For even as God has loved us unilaterally, unconditionally as an act of his will by the intention, the good intention of his own, we can say heart, motivated by that. Has he not sought the highest good for us in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ? Was it not a great sacrifice that that love was put on display when Jesus took upon himself our sin and our punishment on the cross, standing in our place so that by his death, uh, uh, by his death for us, we may be forgiven our sin. And by his resurrection from the dead, we are made reconciled to God, made right with God, granted the anticipation of hope in eternal life, in the presence of God, and it all is a display for what? Why does he do it? To make you look good? Does he do it to make you feel better? He does it, beloved, to glorify himself. You and I are to be monuments of grace, monuments of his glory, and that is the expression of God's love for us so that even now believers are called to resolve, to make this commitment, to make a pact as it were, to live out the principle of that kind of love, to keep yourself in that. This is what will move me. This is how I will respond to others because this is the love of God. I will keep myself in that. It's quite the resolve. This command that believers keep themselves in the love of God then is an urging to keep themselves within that sphere, within that practice of love. God's love for us is protective. God's love for us brings peace and hope and security. God's love is that which keeps us safe from all harm. Be it circumstances, be it demons, be it the devil himself. So then, while it is true that we cannot control God's love for us, according to God's word, his love for his children is full and sure. In 1 John 3.1, we are presented with an incredible statement concerning God's own love for his elect. And I just, I want you to consider this because this is God's love that we were to keep ourselves in. So we read in 1 John 3.1, these words, See how great a what? A love. The Father has what? Bestowed, granted upon us that we would be called children of God. When John penned these words, he was overwhelmed by the fact that sinners were, by God's marvelous grace, made children. Those who had no business to be his children have been made his children. John opens with the salvo, see how great a love. The sta- this is a statement of amazement. The verb to see there is both a command. It means, behold, you now take a good, long, hard look at this. And it's also an exclamation as if to say, oh, my word, as I consider the great love of God, my heart is overwhelmed. The exhortation calls believers to pay close attention to the rest of the verse. He says, see how great a love. The the word translated how great is used only seven times in the New Testament, and it is such a pregnant word. It has so many meanings. There is no one English word that gives it an equivalence. In the NASB, it's translated how great a love. In the King James, it is behold what manner of love. The word itself speaks, listen, of a reaction of astonishment and admiration upon viewing something or someone. You're just like in awe. I am in awe of the love of God. That's keeping yourself in the love of God. When, you're, when you've stopped, when we stop as a church or as individuals being in awe with the great love of God for us, we will fall prey to apostasy. That's what's going on in our text. The idea here in John then is that the love of God is so glorious, it's so measureless, it's so superlative that he has gone to the degree of bestowing and granting to us freely the title of children of God. It was a love that was sacrificial. It was a love that sought the highest good to those to whom it was directed. In John, 1 John 4, 9, and 10, we see John saying that very thing. He says, by this, the love of God was manifested where? In us. Did you get that? In us. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And now Jude comes along and says, keep yourself in that. Keep your mind in the forefront of your mind, this concept of the greatness of the love that has made you his own, by which God calls you not only children of God, according to John, but beloved, according to Jude. This is what we are to resolve to keep ourselves in. I mean, and it's interesting. Again, it is, we may, we may fail in this command, we do, but every time we fail, it's, it's got to be, I, I am God by your grace, I am determined, this is what I'll do. This is my non-negotiable, this is my rock upon which I will stand. I will keep myself in the love of God. Peter, Peter echoes this sentiment when he wrote in 1 Peter 4, 8, Above all, keep, guard, watch, keep fervent in your love for one another because love does what? covers a multitude of sins. Now, I just want you to think about that. It is the love of God that sent his son Jesus Christ to be the propitiation, the satisfying atonement for your sins so that your sins could be forgiven. And now Peter comes along and says, guess what? I want you to practice that kind of love with one another in the church. Because love, this kind of love, if you keep yourselves in the love of God, covers what? A multitude of sins. We can be a pretty oversensitive people. And we allow other people to rock our world pretty pretty freely. And yet, Jude's saying, don't go there. Because when you go there, when you allow this kind of uh, understanding of the love of God to be manifested in your life, and you begin to, to uh, not allow that love to cover the multitudes of sins of others, then guess what happens? You're in danger of falling away. You will become embittered. You will find yourself struggling with the practice of forgiveness. The command here of Peter to keep fervent in your love for one another is, it speaks of intensity, does it not? Fervent in your love for one another. He could have just said, he could have just said, above all, Love one another, but he says keep fervent in your love for one another. And, and then he says in the love of, uh, and then he makes that uh, final expression because love covers a multitude of sin. Again, all this is saying is that even as God has loved us and has forgiven us in Christ, believers are now to keep themselves in that kind of mindset, in the sphere of the love of God. So then to keep yourselves in the love of God means to be alert, to protect against anything that might cloud your own conscious consciousness of his love you know a doctor may tell you to exercise daily to make a conscious daily effort to do such a thing and now Jude's coming along as Dr. Jude if we could say and he's calling believers to make a conscious daily effort to stay within that sphere of the love of God I made the commitment now I'm going to do it since keeping oneself conscious of the depth and intent of God's love requires a bit of human will the resolve to do it Jude commands it because it's easy not to do it. It's easy not to keep yourselves in the love of God. It's easy to be embittered. It's easy not to uh, allow love, the love of God to cover a multitude of sins. What Jude commands is nothing new. It's found in the teachings of Jesus himself who told his disciples in John 15 verses 9 and 10. Well, he, he, longer statement, but this one short statement from there, he says, abide in my love. The same thing as what Judah is saying keep yourselves in love of God. Jesus said, abide in my love. To, to abide means to dwell in the love of Jesus. It indicates that there will be an obedience on our parts to live in light of that love. I so appreciate, I am so overwhelmed by the love of Jesus for me that I will live in that kind of love. Believers are made aware of the love of God by the work of the Holy Spirit within us in whose realm or sphere of influence we are to be praying, verse 20. Sin and disobedience will always darken and blind the consciousness of God's love. When you allow sin to continue in your life, it will blind you and it will dull your conscience concerning the love of God and then that just starts off this spiral of not doing what God has called us to do. For Jude, the infiltration in the church of ungodly people who are doing ungodly deeds and ungodly ways, according to verse 15, was an indication that some were pretending to be Christians, but now you can identify clearly that they're not in the love of God. Well, that brings us to the final phrase of verse 21, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we are to keep ourselves in the love of God, if we are in that sphere, it results in something. It brings us to another practice, and it is the waiting anxiously for the return of Christ. If we're aware of the fact that we're sinners in need of saving, and that he, because of his love, sent forth his son Jesus Christ to be both our Savior and Lord, proving it by dying on the cross for his people's sins and rising again on the third day, then knowing and experiencing such a love has this effect. It has you looking forward to the day when the one who saved you will come again. It is an anxious waiting. It is, I cannot wait to see my Savior. Though though I do not see him now, I love him, Peter writes. The participle, waiting anxiously, is like the, two participles in verse 20. It's in the present tense, meaning that we are to be waiting and to keep on waiting and always be waiting until he comes. The verb here speaks of an attitude of eager expe- expectancy. It is a readiness to welcome that for which you have been waiting. Like eager, eagerly awaiting a grand vacation. If we, we went to a uh, to Disney World back in February and man we had our bags packed the week before we were ready to go and get on the plane we were ready we were anxiously waiting for the trip well believers are to be ready and waiting for the return of Christ I find that perhaps too often we haven't packed our bags uh, I had some of those in my family that's like my bags have been packed for a week and we're about to leave tomorrow and I said hey are you ready like we're, we're packing our bags now the night before, how do you know you're going to have everything? Except believers can do that too. They can think, well, I'll get ready for Christ's return when I see him coming. No. You get, you're to be ready now. Well, how am I supposed to be ready? Keep yourself in the love. If you are not loving God, you're not keeping yourself in that conscious awareness of God's love for you and letting that motivate your behavior towards others, you're not ready. I'm not saying you're not a believer. I'm just saying you're not getting yourself ready as you ought to. Beloved, being ready this way has a purifying effect. It helps us keep our present in right perspective because the present sometimes looks Dumb and dull and dooming, right? Sorry, all my D's on the fly there. <clears throat> Earthly joys, as wonderful as they are, they're temporary. You're happy today and tomorrow what? You get slapped in the face. Earthly sorrows, those momentary light afflictions, are nothing, though, when you compare them to the light of what awaits us in glory when we are face-to-face with Jesus. By waiting anxiously for Christ, Jude says we are protecting ourselves from evil because we're comparing all things now to all the things that await us in Christ, and there's no comparison. Jude says, says that this waiting is for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. This mercy that is to be bestowed on them by the one whom believers proclaim as our Lord Jesus Christ. Believers are those who have already experienced what Jude referred back up in verse 2. And and note this, note verse 2 with me. Jude says, may mercy, see that? Verse 2, may mercy and peace be what? Multiplied to you. I just, I'm overwhelmed at that statement. That mercy, I don't haven't I already received mercy? I've believed on Lord Jesus Christ, but it's being multiplied to me. It's still coming. It's still being poured out upon me. It's it's more, it's multiplying in, in my experience as I walk with Christ. Beloved, if you are a believer, you should be able to go back and recount the mercies of God in your life right doesn't doesn't Paul do that in Romans 12 therefore i urge you brethren in light of by the mercies of god and you're supposed to do mercies plural you have more than one mercy can yeah have you when was the last time you began listing those out just thinking of the mercies of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, anyway, he's already talked about the mercies of God in our lives, what believers are offered here then is a promise that God will continue to extend mercy to them, to believers as they eagerly await the return of Christ. So I know there's people that are bummed out about what happened this week politically. My king's coming. You've got a better government. Why would I fret? Why would I worry? I do, but I shouldn't. Right? <laughs> Believers in Christ are those who are keenly aware that even now sins fo- sin follows them, for all have sinned. Believers are to know that when Christ returns and we see the Holy One, we will still be in need as of much mercy as when we first believed. I need as much mercy today as I did when I first believed. This reminds us that salvation is never a matter of personal merit. I'm never going to get myself to a place where I no longer need the mercy of Jesus. How does that strike you? How humbling is that? I've been a Christian for 30 years. I've been a Christian for 50 years. I've been a a deacon in the church. I've served as a pastor. I've faithfully taught the children for umpteen years. I don't need the mercy of God anymore. Now, we would never say it, but sometimes we can act like it. Beloved, none of us have arrived in this walk with Christ, and we will be in just as much need of the grace of God and the mercy of God when Jesus returns as we did when we first believed. The rapture of the church is described in 1 Thessalonians 4 when believers are caught up together with Christ in the clouds to be with him forever. That is the marvelous display of the mercy of God. Why should he catch us up at all? You don't deserve it, but in the moment that we will, in the twinkling of an eye, be changed and caught up together with Christ in the clouds, you will be overwhelmed at mercy multiplied to you. So wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. He could have left us to the judgment of our sins, and yet when Jesus meets us or we meet him in the clouds, we will say, wonderful, merciful, merciful savior this expectation takes believers then from their present state all the way to eternal life is that what the text says the goal the aim of our waiting anxiously for Christ is to dwell with him forever it says to eternal life but eternal life is more than simply endless existence and we kind of get that drilled into our head I'm going to live forever yay Eternal life is the experience, not just of life forever. Let me tell you what eternal life is, because if you are a believer, you have this now. It is the ability to live life in its highest and fullest sense. We should be, what did Jesus say? I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly, fully, to its utmost. Now, sin and the circumstances of this world uh, don't allow us to experience uh, to the fullness that we ought, and that's what we're waiting for, but we still have it now. We're to be waiting anxiously for the coming of this fullest experience of living. That's mercy, that I don't have to live with reference to sin any longer. C.S. Lewis once noted, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. If you can say this world has nothing for me, if you recognize that I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold, then you're getting an idea of all these things. For those who keep themselves in the love of God, doing so by building up one another on our most holy faith, by praying in the Holy Spirit and thus waiting anxiously for Christ's return, these are those who sense that this world has nothing for them. Such people are those who then become resistant to apostasy, you put it on the wrapper, apostasy resistant, because we know that there's something and there's someone better coming for to wait for the coming of the mercy of Christ to eternal life, then is to look for the final and full manifestation of eternal life that is already ours as believers, the full and final consummation of our being what? What does it mean? It conformed to the image of Christ, the very likeness of Jesus. Coming back to the testimony of John, 1 John 3, verses 1 through 2, we read the first one, See, behold, wake up, and now consider how great the love the Father has given, granted to us, that he would give us this title of children of God, and such we are, doubt it not. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, he uses that term, now we are children of God, you've said that already, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be be, but we know that when he appears, we know when we see him, we know that the mercy of God will be extended in that moment as we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. Paul says something similar, but maybe not quite as, I mean, it's, we use this and it's quite profound, but I like John, it was more flowery, I guess, but uh, Paul says it in Romans 8:29 you're familiar with this, those whom God foreknew. He also predetermined, predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. Jude 20 through21 then provides us as believers with the strongest of incentives to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. It is an awareness and the practice of the love of God that serves as our best weapons against the temptations of apostasy. I would have you consider then, are you in the love of God? If so, how are you manifesting that love? If not, would you come to the God of love, turning now in repentance and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? It is Christ who ushers us into the awareness of the love of God. If you're not certain of the love of God, turn to Christ and say, Jesus, reveal it to me by your spirit. Let me close by reading again the words of Octavius Winslow that we began with. Do I love you, O my Lord? Behold my heart and see. Gently dislodge each idle thence that seeks to rival thee. You know I love you, dearest Lord, but, oh, I long to soar far from the sphere of mortal joys, and to learn to love you more. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your love for us. A love that sent your son Jesus Christ into this world to save sinners. May we who have been redeemed be reminded that we were sinners that needed to be saved. And that you saved us by your grace, not because of our works. That you have manifested the greatness of your love to us so that we might live in that sphere. And now we pray that you would grant us that resolve. That we would keep ourselves personally and then seek to keep others in the love of God. This attitude that we've looked at this morning. Father God, we pray that it will be for the well-being of our souls, for the opening of hearts that have yet to bow the knee to Christ, and for your glory. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name.